think for us, when we think of research, like most families with, you know, a family member, especially a child navigating this journey, we have a sense of urgency and we, we would love a cure or a treatment. But I think for us, in, in addition to cure or treatment, we just want positive outcomes. We want to know as much as we can about this diagnosis. That was Sarita Edwards, co-founder of the EWE Foundation and mother to a son who lives with Edwards syndrome, or as it's more commonly known, trisomy 18. Join us as we break down the bumpy diagnostic journey she and her family went on with her son, Elijah, some of the challenges that came with this ultra rare disease, and how she and the rest of the team at the EWE Foundation are working to improve the lives for the rest of the Trisomy 18 community. Well, Sarita, it is such a pleasure to have you on Real Talk Real World Data today. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Now, I'd like to kick things off um, by learning a little bit more about how you've come to the rare disease space and what led you to start the EWE Foundation to support patients and families impacted by Edwards syndrome, commonly known as trisomy 18. Um, So I actually was introduced to the rare disease space um, around 22 weeks pregnant. Um, My husband and I, we learned that we were expecting our fifth child and just at a routine, you know, prenatal visit, an ultrasound showed some anomalies and we were told that our unborn child looked to have Edwards syndrome, which was a rare genetic chromosome disorder. You know, really at that point, we did a lot of Google searching, which is something that they told us not to do. But of course, that's what we did. And, and we began to see what that meant for us as a family. I I don't think we really understood the magnitude of it at that time. But we kind of started trying to figure out what does this diagnosis mean for us? And I think that really introduced us to the like the rare disease conversation. I think we actually crossed over into the space of just meeting other families, you know, after Elijah, that's our son, after he was born. And the challenges of having a, a, a child with a rare disease became very, very present. And so that kind of crossed us over into the actual rare disease space and learning you know, more about what it meant for us as a family, what it meant to other families. And, and that led to the foundation, the EWE Foundation. You know, we saw that it was an opportunity for us to provide support for families that that we felt like would have been good for us, but we did not find. And we thought that starting a foundation was the best way to try to provide that support. Um, But then we saw an opportunity to try to bridge the gap between receiving a diagnosis like this and the healthcare space, because a lot of our challenges were, were coming from our healthcare system because of the diagnosis. And so so that was our introduction and and really the whole purpose behind starting a foundation to really try to raise awareness, to also be a support system for other families who had like a similar journey like ours. So it's really interesting and a little surprising to hear that you you were advised specifically not to turn to Google because I think anyone who's in your 
situation of of getting getting a diagnosis like that and you know it, it's you you will go to the end of the internet to find mm-hmm. answers to find solutions to find support and resources and so i suppose you know what, what's your message to to other parents you know who are who find themselves in a similar situation and and receive a, a prenatal diagnosis and seek out support as you did personally for me i think you have to go to I think you have to go to Google. I think you have to, you know, try to see what's out there and what the diagnosis mean. Um, I think it's, I think it's a natural instinct to want to do that. You know, for us, I think they were trying to shield us from, from the statistics or the, the science that says this diagnosis, Edward syndrome or trisomy 18, um, is incompatible with life. And, you know, for us, we found out firsthand that that gives leverage to a lot of doctors to refuse you care. And so I think they were trying to shield us and, and protect us from what we were going to find when we did the Google search. I think the challenge with that is you know, in their wanting to shield us, they really are, and they being our our medical team, our OB team, they really didn't give us a lot of information to go off of. So really Google was our only go-to. I think for families who find themselves on a similar path, you know, I think it's, it's really up to them and how much information they want to know. Some families, they don't want to know anything but, you know, what the healthcare system tells them, what the medical professionals tell them, and that's okay. But for me, I like to know as much as I can. So if a family is a thinker like I am and, and they want to try to figure out as much as they can when they feel like they don't have enough information, I strongly encourage looking up information, you know, make sure it's coming from a credible source. But again, I think the challenge there in this rare disease space, you don't know who's credible. You don't know who's reliable and what information is a good go-to source. And so I think it's about personal preference, honestly. I don't think one way is right or wrong. I think it's all about what you want and what you want to know. I think that's a great perspective. You mentioned that that your experience led to the you know formation of the EWE Foundation. You've you've certainly compiled um, resources in in that in the foundation through the foundation website, which we'll link to in the in the show notes. Um, and I'm I'm guessing that you know the resources that you've pulled in are maybe some of the things that you know you you wish you had known or had at your fingertips at the mm-hmm. time of Elijah's diagnosis. You know, one question I had and maybe to give some further context for our listeners, you you talk about the EWE Foundation as having kind of two two primary goals. One, you know, offering resources to families, whether that's mental health support, economic assistance, health literacy, community education to ensure that they know they're not alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then second, you know, really trying to change the medical perspective on trisomy 18. Um, as you put it, you know, the, the, the perspective that trisomy 18 is considered not, not compatible with life. I, I'd love to hear, you know, especially in light of your personal experience, how are you thinking about where where the foundation kind of focuses and spends its time as far as, you know, education, access to care, you know, research and, and other areas. 
I think I think we spend a lot of our time <clears throat> on the patient advocacy side. We try to make sure families know what trisomy 18 is to the extent that we know. And, and, you know, we have a lot of information on our website. You know, it may be to some degree overwhelming to some people. I, I honestly don't know. We get a lot of good feedback from it. But I think, I think from the patient perspective, we want to make sure information is out there about the diagnosis. We want families to know what resources are available. And, and we use our journey as the blueprint to do that. We want families to know about early intervention services, you know, that an infant can start at birth and have through the age of three. But we learned about it when Elijah was two. Um, so we only had one year of service. And so so we want to put as much information out there as possible for families. We are just really starting that conversation of research. But our goal as we cross over into that, sp that space even further is to just be 100% transparent about what that means. You know, we want to, you know, our goal is not to create false hopes or, you know, create conversations that really have no measurable outcome. Our goal is to look at research and what it means for trisomy 18 families. And, and if that means that we don't discover a cure or a treatment, you know, it, it doesn't mean that we can't create a better healthcare outcome or quality of life. And so, so we want to be fully transparent with, with all of that. And, and again, and, empower patients to use their voice and, and be okay with giving pushback to doctors if, if something doesn't feel right for your child. And again, that's just based on our experience. You know, we've been offered services or, or treatments and, and we've had to question, you know, why do you think this is good for Elijah? Is it because the medical science says this about trisomy 18 children, or is this something that's going to create a better quality of life for him? And so empowering patients to be okay with asking those questions to their healthcare teams and to practitioners. I think, you know, when it comes to the healthcare space, our goal is really to change the narrative. We know that statistically only five to 10% of babies born alive with trisomy 18 will live past their first birthday. And those babies will have severe intellectual disability. We know that to be a reality based off the science, but we want to encourage our healthcare uh, practitioners and specialists and, and therapists to really look at the individual, look at the baby, see how they're thriving and, and see if there's something in that individual child that's saying something different than what the textbook said. And, and to the extent of what that is, is that worth exploring to see if we can do something different? You know, uh, the trisomy 18 diagnosis, we, we know of families who, who they, they believe as a family that their child could benefit from a heart surgery, for example. But because of the trisomy 18 diagnosis, doctors won't do it. Cardiologists won't touch it. And so we want to, at the very least, spark conversation about the why it isn't viable versus 
the diagnosis creating the automatic no that we shouldn't explore it. So I think that's our whole goal as a conversation, as an organization from both sides. You know, we want to overall, it's the whole, I think it's an overarching goal to just change the perspective about the, the disease. But I think it's coming from two different perspectives for, you know, if you're a patient, um, and a family versus if you're a healthcare system, because you're bringing two different things to the conversation. So, um, yeah, I think that's our that's our goal to just to start the conversations. Mm-hmm. I'd love to, to come back to the research thread that you mentioned and, and double click on that if we can. Uh-huh. As you know, here at Pulse, we we live and breathe the world of, of real world data and registries and observational and natural history studies, and so. I, I wondered what you know. What is the role that you see registries and and real world data more broadly playing in in research in trisomy eighteen and you know, potentially supporting the development of you know new treatments or perhaps helping improve the medical community's understanding of of trisomy eighteen. When I think of research, I think of Looking at, you know, looking at patient data, looking at the illnesses in in our children, looking at the family dynamic, taking a look to see, you know, as as children progress, as they as they get older, um, what are they doing? What type of behaviors are they are they experiencing? What type of you know cognition and communication and mobility? Um, what are families seeing? And as an organization with a team of researchers and scientists and, you know, and everybody, all the stakeholders, how can we use that data to proactively help the families coming behind us? You know, is there some type of, are are we seeing that when children with trisomy 18 reach the age three, we're seeing this? Or as children get older and cross over into the education system, the public school system, are we seeing this? I think it's an opportunity to to pull a lot of information together to see what are we seeing in the babies. You know, I think it's an opportunity too to see the differences. We know that every outcome isn't the same. So, you know, is there is is there something at a certain age that a family did different than another family that created a different outcome, good or bad, just different. And and really how can we use that information to ultimately, again, create a better quality of life? I think for us, when we think of research, like most families with you know, a family member, especially a child navigating this journey, we have a sense of urgency and we would love a cure or a treatment. But I think for us, in addition to cure or treatment, we just want positive outcomes. We want to know as much as we can about this diagnosis because as much as we can pull together and have data to support it, I think that's going to help the conversation with the healthcare space. I think that opens up more conversation when you can have something measurable and something documented 
for them to look at and and find value in. So um, when when we think of research, I think that's that's kind of our approach to really start the conversation with how are how are kids performing and what are they doing? How are they behaving? And and see where that leads us. Um, I think is where we are with the conversation. When you think about, as you put it, you know, using data to help families coming behind you, what are some of the challenges and barriers you see to doing that effectively? Um, you know, when we talked, uh, when preparing for this conversation, we talked a little bit about the sort of challenges of data being siloed. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think one of the biggest challenges when it comes to preparing for the families behind us, I think it is that I think there is a I think collecting data is one thing. I think actually using that data is something totally different. Um, and I think I think we are. You know, I think there are so many organizations, not just in the Trisomy 18 space, but across the board. I think I think so many organizations are, you know, they have a goal to collect patient data. And I think I think for whatever reasons, whatever those goals are, I think the challenge is because the data is so siloed, another organization sees an opportunity to collect data, too. And and then now that information is siloed. Well, then here comes another organization that's ready to collect patient data. And everybody is looking at the same information. They're targeting the same patients, but there's no clear, there's no clear description or objective of what the goals are to collecting data. When we started on this journey, I, you know, I put our information in, I think two databases, I think. And and they were just, you know, they just wanted to know about the child. They When did you get your diagnoses? Any surgeries that he had had and, and all that. And I don't think I ever, I don't think I ever made it past that first year. I want to say I probably started that and Elijah was maybe a year old. I learned about him. I put my information in. And, and to this day, um, Elijah's five. No one from either of those databases has ever reached out to me to check on progress or see if Elijah's even still alive. And so, you know, that's not to say that what we put in isn't being used some way. But but as the person who owns that data and put it in that system, I have no idea of how it's being used. And so I think I think we have silos in terms of not sharing information with other organizations um, in a collaborative nature. But I also think we have silos as organizations. We're not sharing how we're using the information with the patients. I think that's the biggest challenge for the patient behind us. We're not not producing anything to give them um, so they can be prepared for what this journey may look like. And so I I think that's the biggest challenge. I thought it was important to highlight that experience you had and the, the broader perspective you have on on the challenge of data silos because it's it's unfortunately common in in the rare disease world and, and we're really passionate at Pulse about how we you know through our platform through partnerships with organizations like the Critical Path Institute mm-hmm. to 
find ways to collaborate across different sources, different registries, and and even different diseases and syndromes. Yeah. Um, what what are some of the goals for the EWE Foundation over the next year, and how can people learn more about all the important work you're doing? Um. So. A lot of our biggest, a lot of our bigger goals are really to cross over into the research space. That's probably our our largest goal um, right now. Is we're having several conversations with with researchers and scientists and and you know organizations who speak the research language. We want to make sure we're crossing over in that space prepared, and 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 make sure we're connecting and collaborating with the right people. We want to, you know, not try to maneuver something we have no experience in and and research is that space. We we don't know the research space. We don't even know what research looks like for a trisomy 18 diagnosis. And so I think one of our one of our our, our very, very large goals is to actually cross over into the research space. You know, I will say, you know, we're so so grateful that we've even had, you know, a, a biobank reach out to us where a family donated samples and they heard about us and they believe in what we're doing and they want to give us samples. And so, so we're, people are ready for us and we're not, we're not ready for them, which is great. It just, it, it helps me know that we're having the right conversations to where people want to work with us. I think too, we have our three core programs, um, Leap, Zebra, and Stripe. And over the course of the next year, we really want to expand those. We have our community education and health literacy with our Leap program. We really want to expand that to just make sure we're 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 giving patients the information that they're looking for, and not just creating content. So we really want to expand that to try to build our our patient and family engagement. We've really had a strong focus on self care and mental health under under our Zebra program, which is comfort care and end of life solutions. But over the past year, we have really strongly been pushing mental health and self-care. And so we want to continue those efforts over the next year. And with our financial assistance program, we really want to just expand it to cover more stuff. You know, right now we've covered things from utility assistance to durable medical equipment. And we really want to incorporate, you know, respite care and some other um financial components that that we hear are a need. We haven't necessarily heard that it's a need in the trisomy 18 space, but we're hearing it across the board and the rare disease space. And so we want to go ahead and expand so we can have those services available if that time presents. And um, um, those are our biggest goals, I would say. I think, you know, ways people can get involved. There are so many ways from volunteering for one of our volunteer team position roles to, um, we haven't had any in-person events since COVID. We've had some really good success just in the virtual space. So we, we're we probably going to stay virtual with a lot of our events for a little while longer, just because we've had just really, really great success with that. But, um, you know, folks can just look at the website, reach out to us. I'm always open to a conversation and and seeing how we can work together to to really move the needle for patient communities, even if it's not trisomy 18, that's our disease affiliation, but 
but we provide resources and support to to patients all across the rare disease community. So anybody can can extend a, a conversation. We'll be happy to have that that chat. I love that. That's one of the one of the things I appreciate so much about the rare disease space is that um, the true feelings of community and support and and, uh-huh. and cutting across silos and cutting across um, diseases because there are so many similarities um, and and support that can be offered when when reaching across. Yeah. Uh, well, Sarita, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story sharing your passion to support families like yours and and for your perspective on registries and research. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for all you guys are doing for the rare, the rare disease community. 